0: So this semester, we're going to consider who is the real Jesus. Who is the real Jesus? Because the heart of Christianity is Christ. That may seem like a fairly simple thing to say, but it's an important and vital thing to say nonetheless. The heart of Christianity is Christ. If you really understand what Christianity is all about, then you have to understand who Jesus is, what He was about, what He came to do. And I do not assume that everybody at Belmont University or everybody in this room knows about that. I know a few years ago, there was a student who'd been involved with RUF, and he was in a New Testament class. And at the end of one of the first classes, a girl came up to him and said, now, I don't really know much about this Christianity thing. I just kind of had to take a religion class, so I'm in this class. You seem to know a lot about this. Could you just basically sit down with me over a cup of coffee and give me like the Cliff Notes version of who Jesus was and what this is all about? And he started to talk with her about it. He said, well, you know, Jesus lived and then he died, and three days later he was resurrected from the dead. And she goes, what? Like she literally had never heard that Christians believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, You may think that that's strange at a place like Belmont University, but I I just would encourage you, don't assume things, and don't assume that because people maybe are familiar with that stuff that they get it or like it or understand the significance of it. I know myself, when I went off to college, I knew a bare minimum about Christianity. I'd gotten converted around ninth grade, but I knew very, very little and I ended up getting some roommates that challenged me in all kinds of ways. I didn't know how to respond to all those sort of things. One of the things that I want to be able to help you all with, and same with my interns and some of our older students, is being able to help you navigate questions about faith and life. And are we're very committed to that sort of thing? So, tonight we're going to sort of do a little introduction about why we're going to look at the life of Jesus and who is the real Jesus. Because figuring out who the real Jesus is actually isn't as simple as you might think. There actually are some barriers to understanding who the true Jesus is that we're going to talk about tonight. The first one is that Christians have often distorted who Jesus really is. They often mean well, but nonetheless, they distort who Jesus is. I couldn't resist but show you this picture. This was a couple years ago. You remember, the, uh, <laughs> you remember this? Okay, this, this beautiful fresco painted uh, in the 19th century over in Spain, and this older lady decided she meant well, but she decided that she would restore it herself. Um, this painting is actually called uh, Echo Homo, Behold the Man, but everybody began calling it Echo Mono behold the monkey. <laughs> Others described it, yeah, sort of as like a, a shaggy-haired monkey, you know, in sort of like a monk's costume. You right. that's kind of silly. Now, here's the great thing about this story. I, I was looking this up on the internet, just kind of seeing whatever happened to this, because a couple years ago this happened, it was all over the news. Turns out people started flocking to this church to see the refurbished version of, uh, of Jesus there, started giving a lot of money to the church in this little donation box, and then the, the old lady that painted this and ruined the painting got a lawyer and is suing the church for part of the royalties claiming copyright infringement. <laughs> well, you know, that's the modern world we live in, you know? So we want to we talk about, I mean, that's kind of silly, but, but the idea that even well-meaning people who love Jesus, can distort who he is, give false ideas of who he is, is an important one that we have to recognize. And there's a particular one I want to talk about tonight, and and to get at it, we need to consider this word gospel. In the New Testament, in the Bible, we have four books in there. They're more like little sections, right? they're called the gospel, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John. And that word gospel is a very important word if you want to understand what Christianity is about. The word gospel literally means news. It means news. And it was a particular kind of news in the first century when this word was used by the Christians. You might find this interesting. It actually wasn't a religious word at all. The word gospel was not a religious word. It wasn't a church word. It wasn't even a Jewish word that they used. But it was a word used in the Roman society. It was the word that you would use when there was a great military victor, a great military victory that would change the status and or condition of the people who heard the news. So it always was a word that referred to a victory, a military victory that would change reality. So it wasn't a Christian word. It wasn't a churchy word. It wasn't a religious word. But it quickly became the best word for the early followers of Jesus to use to describe the significance of who he is and what he did. But here's what's happened, I think, in the centuries since. For a lot of people, particularly those raised in churches When they hear the word gospel, or when they hear people say, you know, you need to share the gospel, they don't hear that as you need to share the news about what Jesus has done. What they tend to hear is you need to tell somebody to do something, to pray a prayer, to walk forward at an aisle. So instead of it being news, the word gospel in most of our churches ends up meaning something like advice or instruction about something you need to do. And that then filters into the way people understand Christianity. It's less focused on God and what he's done and who he is, and it's more focused on what we are supposed to do. And this has devastating effects not only inside the churches, but for those who are outside the church trying to figure out what Christians are all about. Because if they would look at the church and hear us talk about preaching the gospel, they get the idea that what we really mean is about things that people should do and ways that people should live that we're trying to impose on them. So it was a book that came out a few years ago called UnChristian. It's an interesting book. Um, David Kinnaman, who wrote the book, did a lot of very, very um, intense surveys of people between the age of twenty and thirty who would self-consciously say, "I am not a Christian." These are people that self-identify as not being Christians. And one of the interesting things about that book, the number one thing that people th- in their 20s and 30s, who are not Christians, self-consciously, the number one thing they think of when they think of church and Christianity, do you know what it is? Anti-gay. If you would ask people in their 20s and 30s in America who identify themselves as not being Christians, what is the church? What do you think of when you hear the word church or you hear the word Christianity? The number one answer is anti-gay followed closely behind by intolerant. Now, we might say, that's not fair, but here's the thing that we have to to own. They got that from somewhere. They got that from somewhere. Unfortunately, the Christian church, in a lot of ways, has turned the gospel into news, not into news, but into advice and instruction about what people need to do more than about what God has done. Never mind that the Apostle Paul says specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Even though that's in the Bible, for the most part, Christians are known and Christianity is known for what we're against and how we think people should live. Now, we can have a fruitful discussion about the Bible, and our sexuality. I'd love to have that over a cup of coffee sometime. I don't know if it's very profitable to try and have it in a group this size. It'd just be chaotic, right? But it should break our hearts and make us want to rend our garments that the number one thing people think about when they think of the church is anti-gay. Not just because of that, but because they think in terms of what we're against. There's two problems. The thing that they think we're against. And the fact that when they think of us, all they think of is what we're against. And like I said, the people raised in good Bible-believing churches, they tend to think of the gospel as advice rather than news as well. If you ask people, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? I like to do this sometimes with freshmen. What does it mean to be a Christian? And I almost never get a good answer to that question, honestly. What I usually get are answers in terms of what Christians do. Well, to be a Christian means that you read your Bible and, well, they usually say, try to read your Bible, try to share the gospel with your roommate, try to pray, try to refrain from this and do this. And they always say try and they always kind of look down at the ground, you know, because nobody's doing it. Everybody feels miserable. And there's almost this, like, direct relationship between the longer you've been a Christian and the more miserable you feel about your Christian life because you tend to think, and we tend to think in terms of what Christians do. Even though I ask the question, What does it mean to be a christian nobody thinks in terms of being if you're wondering what a better answer is a better answer is to be a christian means to be somebody who before the foundation of the world god set his love upon you and when the time was right he sent his son born of a woman to live a perfect spotless life and then die on a cross taking the death that we deserve and giving us the life that we could never earn it means to be adopted as his child it means to be justified sanctified secured by the deposit of the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing what is to come, and it means to reign with Him forever and ever, not because of anything good we've done, but because of what He's done. Now, if if that's what you think of when you think of what it means to be a Christian, it warms your heart, and it chases away some of the fears And the guilt that comes from always thinking about Christianity in terms of doing. So that's the first barrier to understanding who the real Jesus is. We think so much about what Christians are supposed to do instead of who Jesus is. The second, though, is trying to figure out can we actually know what he said and what he did. Now, there's more written on your outline than I'm going to talk about with this point. This is an important issue. It's an important issue I'd love to talk with you more about if you want to, as you go through New Testament, Old Testament, understand Christianity. I suspect questions will be raised for you, and you'll want to talk about these sort of things. Would love to do that, but here's what I want you to understand just for tonight. Is the Bible a reliable source of information about who Jesus is and what he did and what he was like? In other words, Can we even know what he was like? Or are the scriptures so full of myths and distortions and the the opinions of various people over the centuries that we just could never get back to who Jesus really was? Well, here's something you need to understand. You don't need the Bible. You don't need any of the early writings of Christians to know that a man named Jesus of Nazareth lived in the first century in Palestine, that he did miracles, that he claimed to be the Christ, which is a very significant thing in the Jewish understanding. He claimed to be the Messiah, that he was put to death, crucified by the Romans, that three days later, his disciples were running around telling people that he was raised from the dead, and then these Jewish monotheistic men began worshiping him as God. You don't need the Bible to know that. You can get all of that from Jewish and Roman sources alone, okay? So don't believe if people tell you we don't, don't know anything at all. We know about Jesus of Nazareth. We can establish that he was a person and all those things I just told you in the same way that we can establish that Tiberius was the Roman emperor at the same time that Jesus lived, from Jewish and Roman sources. The question then is, what is the most plausible explanation of how this man within the Jewish context and the Jewish expectations about what the Messiah was going to be and what hope they had, how can you explain this thoroughly Jewish hope embodied in this man, which then transforms the hope in a particular way? Whatever you think about Jesus, you have to account for what we know from the Jewish and Roman sources. You have to account for how he comes within the stream of Judaism and then radically transforms it. And I would just tell you, in the many years that I've heard different explanations and thoughts and suggestions, to me still the only plausible explanation that accounts for all of that is what we find in the Bible. Now, I'm not asking you to believe that every word is inerrant. I believe that myself, and I think the Bible teaches that. All I'm asking you is to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt and resist from an overly critical approach that is really not justifiable in light of the facts and the reality. And I've got more stuff here that you could look at if you want to look at some of that, but there really are, you know, solid reasons for trusting the Scriptures as a good starting point for figuring out who Jesus was and what he said and what he did. Uh, The passage of Scripture we're going to look at is uh, on your outline there. It's Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Some people sometimes say, well, you know, the the Bible were just kind of these various stories that circulated for a while, and then eventually, because they'd just been hanging around for so long, people eventually began to worship him. It just sort of happened organically over time. Here's what you got to understand. The earliest records we have of the life of Jesus are not the Gospels. Do you know what they are? They're the epistles. Some of the letters of Paul written 15 to 20 years after Jesus died. We have records, many copies of documents testifying to who Jesus was and that he was being worshipped as God from within 15 to 20 years after his death. You have to account for that somehow. And it's not just regular random gullible people, it's Jewish monotheistic people who every day recited the Shema, the Lord our God is one. And all of a sudden, somehow, they've come to believe that this man who ate fish with them is God. You've got to account for that. You've got to account for that. Here's what Luke says in trying to give an account for this. of the things you have been taught. Now, Luke could be wrong. He could be mistaken. But there's no doubt that he intends to write a carefully investigated, reliable account of who Jesus was and what he did, right? I just think we should at least give him the benefit of the doubt and explore it. Well, there uh, are some legitimate critiques that we could make of some of the overly critical approaches to the Bible. I won't say a lot about that because I don't want to turn this into sort of an argument. But I put that on there if that's something you're interested. I will just say this. One of the things that happens a lot is that people pick and choose which sayings of Jesus they think are authentic. Actually, when I was in seminary, there was a thing called the Jesus Seminar, and they got a lot of publicity because they, a bunch of Bible scholars got together. They were kind of all of one persuasion Sorry, they were all more progressive, didn't have a real high view of the inerrancy or the um, reliability of the Scriptures, okay? But they got together, and they had little colored beads. And every saying of Jesus that was recorded in the Gospels, including the Gospel of Thomas, which we can talk about why that's not a gospel, um, unless, you know, ladies, you know, the Gospel of Thomas says that you need to become a man to enter into the kingdom of God. Right. Most people think the Gospel of Thomas is interesting because they've never read it. It's not a gospel. It doesn't deal with history. And it was understood and known by the early church, and they, re- they rejected it for good reason. But anyway, they were voted on these sayings with like a red bead for, we sure he said it, or pink if we're not sure, and white, he definitely didn't say it. And what's fascinating, what always seems to happen is they end up with a Jesus who, strangely enough seems to be just like the scholars who pick and choose which are authentic sayings in other words to the marxist scholars jesus is a revolutionary okay and to the feminist scholars he's a feminist and to the libertarians, he's a libertarian. And, you know, everybody sort of has a Jesus in their own image. And I can tell you, you can go to any used bookstore in this town. I love used books. And you will find basically a graveyard of every faddish idea about who Jesus was. Because they come and they go. St. Augustine, living back in the 400s, said this, if you pick and choose among the Gospels, if you accept what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. One of the great barriers to understanding who Jesus is is picking and choosing which things you'll allow Him to say. But here's the thing. That's not just a problem for people who reject the Scriptures as God's Word. That's a problem for those of us who have a high view of God's scripture as well. See, what ends up happening, ends up happening, is we all have some preconceived ideas about Jesus. Now we not may not be as radical as Bart Ehrman. I don't know if any of you are using Bart Ehrman's New Testament textbook. They use it a lot around here. Bart teaches at the University of North Carolina, and in this his intro to the New Testament, he says that none of the New Testament books were written by anybody who personally knew Jesus. Now I will just tell you. There's hardly any scholars that believe that. Even the most radical scholars think that that's too far out there. And he makes this statement in a New Testament textbook designed for college students with no footnote, with no sources to back up his claim. Those kind of things happen all the time, okay? It's overstated. One of my great uh, favorite professors, Dr. Robert Yarbrough, a New Testament scholar, said, if anybody ever tells you all scholars agree, They're either hopelessly naive or trying to bully you, okay? Or, more likely, they're defining scholars as people who agree with them. And anybody that doesn't, doesn't rise to the level of a scholar. That kind of stuff happens in academic environments all the time. And you need to ask good questions. You need to be discerning, right? So... What about our own preconceived notions? This is barrier number three. The first is the way the church and Christians have turned Christianity into being more about what we do than about who Jesus was and what he did. The second is rejecting the Scriptures as a reliable source of information. It's hard to understand Jesus if you throw out the only, you know, first-century documents that tell us details about what he did and what he said and what he was about. The third, though, is our preconceived notions, even if you have a view of Scripture that you say, I believe the Bible is God's Word, we still come to the Bible with our preconceived ideas. And there's a ver- another verse I want us to look at that I think is very helpful in this regard. It's John chapter 1, and it's verse 14. This is how John begins his gospel. He says, the Word, and he regards Jesus as the Word, and we'll talk more about that later, but the Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now, That last phrase is what I want to I point out right now. Jesus came from the father full of grace and truth. One of the great barriers to understanding the real Jesus is we tend to think of him as being about grace or being about truth. And it tends to sort of break down along our temperament. People that are more liberal, progressive, tend to think Jesus is all about grace. Don't tell me about how I need to live. Don't, don't tell me about I need to do this and I need to do that because Jesus was all about grace and he welcomed sinners and tax collectors and he ate with them. And they love those stories. Their favorite story generally is the woman caught in adultery where Jesus says, whoever is without sin casts the first stone. And then there are the other people who love to say, no, Jesus is all about truth. And if you're not about truth, you know, then you're not with Jesus. The thing is, the real Jesus upsets everybody. He's too gracious for the truth people, and he's too unbending for the grace people. He does weird stuff that we would rather he didn't do. A poor Gentile woman whose daughter is dying, comes to him and begs him to help her. You remember what he does? He calls her a dog. He does. He says, it's not right for me to take the bread of the children of Israel and give it to dogs. You know what she does? She says, you're right, but bless me anyway. And he says, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. Now, that's a weird story, isn't it? But what I'm going to contend this semester is you don't understand Jesus if you just excise that weird story out of your Bible. We tend to excise those uncomfortable things out of the Bible. But I will tell you, most of the weird stuff Jesus says and does is pointing us to what he's all about. And you may not see it at first, but eventually you'll get there. There are a lot of there are a lot of things in life like this. You think you understand it, and then all of a sudden you see that there's new depths that you never realized before. I got the issue of uh, the new issue of Smithsonian Magazine. Um, my uh, wife's grandmother sent this to our 14-year-old subscription. He never reads it, but I really like it. I re- <laughs> so uh, the cover story this, today was about what's really under Stonehenge. Stonehenge. do you know that they've finally done ground penetrating radar studies of the whole area around Stonehenge and they've discovered there's all kinds of stuff under Stonehenge that they never knew was there there are roads there are other settlements there are all kinds of stuff there are people buried there and the interesting thing about this is you know for years and years and years, people debate what it is, what it's about, all that. But the whole time, they're trying to come up with theories based on part of the evidence. But there's a whole lot lurking beneath that's absolutely vital for them to understand. A lot of times, reading the Bible is that way. Maybe you've heard of this uh, pastor named Tim Keller. Um, His son, Michael, actually does RUF up in New York. And one of our Belmont students, Tim Price, is his intern now. So um, anyway, well, Tim Keller was talking about recently when he was a college student being in a little small group Bible study and having this really fascinating exercise where the the leader of the Bible study, this lady, asked all of them to just take this one verse where Jesus says, "Um, I will make you fishers of men. And she said, I want you for 30 minutes to ponder that verse and write down 30 things about that one verse. And he said after 10 minutes, he was just bored out of his mind. But, you know, he wanted to to go along with the experiment, so he kept at it. Finally, after 30 minutes, he had 30 things. And then the, the lady asked people to circle what they thought were the most profound, most interesting things that they discovered that they would not have thought of before this experiment. And she said, how many of you discovered those insights within the first 10 minutes? No hands. 15 minutes, no hands. 20, a few hands. 25 minutes, more hands. 30 minutes, all the hands. What he said is, there are some of the most important things that you don't get just by a superficial, once-over, five-minute devotional Bible approach. There are things that need to be pondered. They tend to be the things that are weird and upset us. And we're actually going to make a beeline to some of those things this semester because I think they're some of the most fascinating and most powerful pictures that Jesus gives us of who He is, what He was about, what He came to do. See, the real Jesus upsets everybody. There was that silly old Doobie Brothers song when I was your age. Jesus is just all right with me. You know that? It comes comes out of the sort of hippie movement. Yeah, that sounds good. But do you know what? If you actually start reading the Bible, nobody was just all right with Jesus. People either wanted to kill him or worship him. And here's the question I want to leave you with tonight. What kind of reaction does Jesus provoke for you? Does he provoke any kind of reaction? If not, maybe you haven't met the real Jesus. See, the superficial shell of a Jesus that a lot of us have been exposed to, it's okay, you can be all right with him. But the real Jesus always provokes something. I mean, does it upset you that Jesus called a Gentile woman a dog? Does it, you know, it should, should provoke something. But my hope is that it provokes you to go deeper. Say, what is going on here? That's what we're going to be about this semester. I hope you come back. Um, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to end by singing the doxology. I know not everybody will know that. It's an ancient Christian song that dates back to the 16th century. And um, we do it every week. So if you hang out with us, um, maybe it's one of the habits that will be formed in your life. Uh, Let's pray.